So, here I am in uh, a bed and breakfast bedroom overlooking uh, the Sheen Peninsula, Snowdonia and Harrach Castle. And we've had the first day of a two-day event organised by On the Border. And the Mabinogi has been part of this event. And I'm very pleased to be sitting here with David Davis-Hughes. And I just want to ask him some questions about what the Mabinogi is for him. So, David, we were just beginning to talk about the difference between um, how academics and uh, cultural critics look at the Mabinogi, which is, of course, a very interesting and valid way of looking at it. But unfortunately, how the, the voice of the storyteller seems to be uh, less heard, if heard at all, in fact. I was wondering what your, what your take on that would be, how you what your take as a storyteller on this material is. Uh, well, I remember going up a little hill uh, to a Bronze Age site locally and coming up the hill from the other side, the other car park, was a, a, a scholarly lo- a woman locally, a professor of archaeology, and when she spotted me, she said to the uh, attendants and the crowd with her, she said, ah, this is David. And now I've been telling you about how it was here in the Bronze Age, and David set, tells you stories about how it could have been. And, uh, yes. and they all sort of, oh, mm. and that's it. That there is this feeling that stories are maybe how it could have been, but don't have the sort of the grit and the bones. Uh, and yet, when you listen to archaeologists and, and scholars who are, who are passionate about the stories and about the sites themselves, they'll profess to be uh, they'll profess to be scientific in their outlook. We only stick by what was written, by what's dug up, by what one can handle or brush away uh, and, and identify clearly. But actually, when they start speaking about their subject, they are storytellers. They'll, they'll go into the, the fantasy world in a way that I wouldn't even dream of. What fires them and what's brought them into those, that world is is what fires and interests me uh, about these stories. So, so if David, if you could, if if we had a bunch of um, archaeologists in here now, and you gave yourself a license to tell them what the, is they're actually doing on top of all the scientific stuff, could you put in a nutshell what that would be? Well, it's the it's the breath, it's the blood into it. It's the human feeling that that blows over those archaeological sites or the the, the landscape. I've been to a landscape on the earth that doesn't have a name. I've been through valleys and and mountains that don't have names even, that nobody's walked through ever before. And walking through these mountains that we're looking at now is a completely different experience. Why? Because People have spoken about things that may have happened there. And what is real? What is reality? Let's not go into the deep. <laughs> what is real? But what has meaning until you give it meaning? And, and so the Mabinogi and the stories that we've been uh, sharing about this landscape have given this landscape meaning in a way that archaeology and, and the sciences can sketch out in a bony way I'm not and I don't want to denigrate that at all uh, it sounds loaded doesn't it but both are important 
the science and the art, the craft of it, both are important to, to bring to life something of the past and who we are and who we were. So if I was to, and amongst the archaeologists, I often find myself in, and amongst archaeologists, then, do you know, I listen to groups of storytellers mm. cloaked within the scientific world, mostly. Have, have you told them that? I think they know that. <laughs> I think they know that. But they don't say it, by golly. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Taking that very fascinating thing that you just said, is there something that we're not telling ourselves as storytellers with this material? Are there things that we don't say? Is there anything taboo within this? You do feel there are walls. You do feel almost physical walls that you cannot pass through until you have been tried and tested uh, in a way. You cannot speak it. You cannot go... You can read it. You can think about it. But actually you can't relate it to other people in a living way or Mm. the way that you feel is maybe should be said, um, without really digesting something of it in yourself and bringing it alive. So there are walls that you feel that experiences in the Abhinogi that I, I'm only beginning to reach into it, but I'm feeling there are walls within it that, are, that they're like blank areas, that I know nothing about those emotions or uh, feelings um, of relating to each other all relating to one's to oneself and, and ma- the masked things within oneself. So there are um, areas in the Abinoki that are not taboo, but but they're areas you have to you have to that require there is a price to pay before you go down that road. A wonderful price to pay, but it is a sloughing off of <coughs> of some of the. You know, I'm going to ask you for an example now, don't you? All right. <laughs> mm. I think the particular one was Nissen and Evnissen. Mm. Do you know, I couldn't bear to, to think about what Evnissen had done yeah. to the horses. I couldn't bear. And even now, when I, when I have shared that story, I've seen people in the audience flinch. I've, I've seen them uh, sort of metaphorically sort of cling, clinging to their ears themselves uh, to try and shield themselves from the horror of some of this. And... As I've been able to tell it more um, in through my own understanding of that he's not a separate person, that he is my, that the horror is within me, if you mm. like, mm. that Nissen, the peace bringer and the war bringer, both mm. stride in within me like the two wolves, really. That are, yeah. that's him. Then, of course, I've been able to approach it and and, and share it in a uh, a more wholesome way yeah. than before when I found that there were distinct characters and and one was difficult to approach almost taboo for me to approach mm, that's fascinating there's another a completely different subject I'd like to bring up with you particularly for um, an English language audience um, and that is the place of the Welsh language in the telling not just the telling but in the relationship with the material. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm somewhat heartened that it's come to the Welsh again. Um, 
after over a century now from a from a, an ancient translation that was translated by a, an English woman who had a passion for it, and then she gave it again to to the Welsh. As I understand it, she she translated it into a way that we can once again take it take it up, take those threads up, and I think it's significant that it was translated by Lady Charlotte Guest and not by um, perhaps a, a Welsh scholar of the time, uh, and. And one should look at the, the story and how things are translated and how they come to us very carefully, I think, and how we use it from here on. So your question about how, how does it, uh, how is it with an, the Welsh language, I think it's a humbling experience. I mm-hmm. think it's a, it was, I, I believe, a severed story. It, it, it was lost for a while from our, from our telling, from our repertoire, mm. at least Parts of it were certainly, and that it's come to life again uh, through the gift and the love and work of a woman who d- whose native tongue was not mm-hmm. that. And so she brought it, she brought it through the feminine, if you like. She brought this through her own um, will to bring something alive, and and that in itself has imbued it with something. I think that makes it somewhat of a more balanced uh, thing for us to take on in the Welsh again, the Welsh language again. Um, so if it's, if it's, it's given us permission, really, to broaden it, that it belongs no longer in just the Welsh language or the ancient Welsh or the modern Welsh, uh, it's, it's, it's found a twin in the English language. It's broadened and it's as easy and it trips off the tongue now, as easy, I would say, in the English tongue, as it does in the Welsh, there is a slightly different emphasis um, through telling it in the English tongue. But uh, I think it's a healthy thing that both are side by side now, and and that it can be brought to bring together the, those those two ways of speaking and looking at the world. Mm. And and they do they are they say that languages are like windows, mm. two different windows into the world. And I think both through Charlotte Guest and the ancient Welsh and now our own translations, the Welsh translations of, the, of Charlotte's work, uh, really do serve to bring a, a more holistic view of the Mabinogi and one that is of our time more. Because we need that, I think. Mm. And we can project into it if we want, <laughs> can we? But I think we need that, more of a balance. Um, and for myself, I, I'm heartened by that. And the, that's where I'd like to see Wales going. Great, thank you. And we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I would like to invite you to talk about briefly about something that we mentioned quite a lot uh, in the Welsh interview, which was the nature of the connection of the stories with the landscape. Hmm. I think, again, this question of does anything have a meaning until you imbue it with a meaning? Mm. And... Although there are there are place names to do with those characters within the story, like Arthur, um, he's owned and uh, <laughs> claimed by so many places, and somehow it is claimed and owned by David and Arberth and Dinas Dinlai and Nantled the Nantle Valley, and other places closely associated with the, with the story, and yet it's more universal than that as well. Um, the landscape is a 
is a landscape we can project, I think, anywhere upon the earth. Yes, it happens in Wales, and yes, it brings something of this magic. But the magic is there in Wales. The magic is there. What the story does is helps to unveil our own imagining of Wales. The imagining and the magic is there already, but this story just gives us uh, a, a different portal for for realising our own relationship with the, with the landscape, maybe, which is magic in any case. That's maybe. fascinating, David. So maybe. Yes. Dioch Orgalan, thanks so much for that. And uh, there's real food for thought there, and I'm really pleased to have been able to talk to you the, for the first of what will hopefully be a, an interesting series about storytellers talking about the Mabonogi. Dioch Orgalan. Ah, Chrysa. Dioch Itimakon.